0: Well, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, turn our hearts to God's Word. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 7 tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Should be outlines there on the table somewhere, so. Father, we just thank you for uh, tonight. Thank you that we can gather as the body of Christ to look at your Word, and we look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 tonight. We pray that you would open our hearts and lead us and guide us and apply uh, what we learn tonight to our lives in a practical way as we understand your truth and and Lord, just pray you'd uh, open our hearts now and bless our time together tonight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 7. But we've been looking at 1 Samuel and, and for the first three chapters, we looked at the life of Samuel. We saw his birth, uh, we saw his childhood, we saw his calling into as a prophet there, and then remember in chapter 4 what happens? Samuel disappears (laughs) for three chapters. So it's not till chapter 7 tonight in our study that we reconnect with Samuel. So Samuel's back in the story here in chapter 7 and the context is this. Israel has fallen away from God. Chapter 7 is all about Samuel and his leadership as a spiritual godly man giving them the tools to get back and restore where they once were with God. So it has the idea of of Israel coming back to God. But before we get into the marks of a godly leader, which Samuel is, uh, we want to look at, just remind us where we've we've come from. Remember now, the Philistines came against Israel. They defeated Israel, killed 4,000 of their men. And then Israel decided, oh, we're going to take the ark with us. That will help us win. So they did that, and we talked about that whole idea of having an idol or an icon and putting your trust in that and not what that represents, not in God. And so they took the ark into battle with them. In the meantime, the sons of Eli were corrupting the priesthood. There was all this horrible stuff going on. They go to battle thinking, hey, there's no way we can lose now. Even the Philistines were worried, remember? Oh, they got the ark with them. That represents their God. We're in trouble now. Well, what happens? The Philistine wipes them out. All right, 30,000, right? Other men die. And so they lose 34,000 men in two battles with the Philistines. And in the meantime, they lose the ark. Now, what did the ark represent to Israel? Presence of God, right? God's presence. And so in their mind, they're done. God's no longer on their side. And in the Philistines' mind, what happened? They stole Israel's God. Philistines now have the ark of the covenant, Israel figures. Wow, God's gone, uh, so there's no there's there's no need for uh, Samuel anymore because <laughs> you know he was representative of God. Really, he was God's spokesman, and so he kind of goes. We don't know where he went. He just kind of goes on hi- hi- hiatus, I guess, for three chapters. And in the meantime, we follow the Ark of the Covenant around Philistia, where the Philistines have it. And so first, it starts in Ashdod. And God kind of sends a judgment there. They decide to send it to Gath, and thinking that somehow they can escape the glory of, of God in this, this box, you know, that was causing these problems. But there, what, what does God do? He sends tumors there. And then, eventually, the ark goes to Ekron. And Ekron's not really having that. They're not seeing that. They, they don't agree with that, but they have it. And it says in chapter 5, verse 11, that, death has filled the city with panic. All right, so you have a city that's just terrified that this box is in their presence. And it says that God's hand was very heavy on it. And verse 12 tells us that nobody went unaffected. It says either you were killed or you had tumors. But God's judgment came upon the Philistines there. And and God's glory just crushed them under its weight. They just, it just kind of you know really caused some problems for these folks. Uh, we don't know what the bubonic plague or what happened with the the rats, you know, that's was part of the curses I guess that the judgments that God laid down on them. But in verse 3, they provided this this offering as Peggy was mentioning. And in, the, in their mind they thought, well if we just offer it, send the send the ark away, send it back to where it came from. And but we got to send some kind of offering with it because we want this God to be pleased with us. So in their own wisdom, they come up with these five tumors and five golden mice and throw them, in the bo- or throw them next to the box, put it on a, a cart. They hitch it up to two cows that uh, just had their calves. And that's pretty much it. They didn't say, Woo-ah! they didn't say anything. They just like, like okay, this has got to be a God thing. If this ark is going to go back to the land of Israel, then we'll know if it makes it we'll know that the hand of the God of Israel was against us. Because they still weren't sure. So they hooked this thing up. And now if if a cow just had calves, you know, he'd want to stay with the babies. So God supernaturally caused these cows to be directed right back to where it needed to go, supernaturally. And so you had this this cart going with the ark, and it makes its way back among Israel, to Israel. And the, the Philistines, in the meantime, are pulled back in the hills. They're watching this thing, just making sure that it goes where it should go. And they're probably going, wow, this is incredible. You know, these cows aren't turning left or right. It's going straight where it needs to go. Uh, this isn't looking good. I think we ticked off the wrong God. But hopefully our offering will appease him and everything will be good. So what happens? It arrives in Israel there and What you see from that point is the the Philistine rulers, they basically figure, hey, you know, this is complete. It's done. We're good to go. They turn around thinking everything's going to be fine. Now, you need to stop and think about this, that the heavy weight of the glory of God has been lifted from the Philistines. And now the Ark is safely where it's supposed to be back in the land of Israel, right? But that's not the end of the story. Okay. As we found out in verse uh, 19 and 20 of chapter 6, it says, After the ark arrived at Beth Shemesh, it says that he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they, they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And so they asked a question, who can stand in the presence before the Lord? Who is able to stand before the Lord? They say, this holy God. So this was kind of like, okay, wait a minute. I mean, this is not not supposed to happen. What's going on here? And to whom shall he go up away from us? In other words, how can we get rid of this thing? And so the end of chapter 6 they sent messengers to the inhabitants of, of Kiriath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. You know what? Come down and take it to yourself. You come down and get it. So, what were they doing? They were doing the exact same thing that the Philistines did. It's like passing this hot potato around because they couldn't, didn't know how to properly deal with it. Now, apparently in, in Beth Shemesh, they, they took this ark, and at first it was, remember, they were, hey, this is great, it's come back but they didn't treat it respectfully. They probably set it on a a slab of stone somewhere with the little golden tumors and the golden mice, and hey, okay, let's make this set up as a kind of a tourist attraction. They did so many things wrong, and we're gonna talk about that. What's interesting, when you look at these passages, when you look at chapter four, five, six, and seven, okay, we don't see this in our English as much, but I gave you a little outline there of a certain structure in the Hebrew language, and it, and it basically acts like a mirror, and you can see the outline there. It starts off with the battle at Ebenezer; it's it's one is won by the Philistines. That was the first one. The ark is held by the Gentiles. The ark is plagued in Philistia; it, it plagues the, uh, the the Philistines. What do they do? They return it back, and then you see the the, the kind of it, it's kind of a reverse. The ark plagues the guys at Beth Shemesh. The ark is held by the Gentiles. They're at Kiriath Jerim. And then the battle of Ebenezer is won by the Israelites. So it's almost in reverse order exactly what happened the first time. And that's a certain structure that the Hebrew language uses. And the most important part of that little outline is D the ark returns. The ark returns. It's always in the middle of that structure where your eyes should focus. And so here they delivered this heavy blow at Beth Shemesh. It says the weight of God's glory now before it was on who? The Philistines, right? They were the ones dealing with this thing. But now what happens? Now it's falling on the Israelites. See, the ark was dangerous to the Philistines, but it just got real dangerous to the Israelites. Why? Well, first of all, they didn't do the right thing. It says in Leviticus chapter 1, they were to sacrifice bulls, not cows, when they, when they uh, received the ark. Secondly, in Numbers 4 or 5, it says they had a parade. In, it, it tells us in our context here, it, they had a kind of a parade. They showed this thing off when it should have been covered. Numbers 4 or 5 says the ark should always be covered. It's not for just anybody to gaze upon. And then thirdly, uh, someone had the wisdom to go up and say, hey, let's see what's in the box. <laughs> So, that's what caused the death of these 70 guys. They actually looked inside the Ark of the Covenant. And like I said before, I I wonder who the 70th guy was, or even the 3rd or 4th or 5th. You know, I mean, you see these guys going up, gazing, and they're dead. You think, okay, these weren't too bright. But anyway, this is a key moment in the story here, okay? Remember now, Dagon, their god, the, the, the Philistines' god, fell down before... Uh, the ark and we we look at that because they they brought the ark in and they set it right next to their god and the next morning they woke up Dagon's face down and they had to prop him back up because obviously Dagon was a pagan god he's a false god so he couldn't prop himself back up they put him back up there the next morning what happened they came in his head's cut off his arms are cut off but even that didn't dissuade them from worshiping they kind of Threw them back there in a pile, I guess. I don't know. They realized that, wow, something is going on here with this ark. Eventually, after the tumors and the rats and everything, they said, let's get rid of it. So at the beginning of this story, we think the Philistines are a threat to Israel, right? I mean, that's the enemy. They're coming against Israel. But now, (laughs) what's interesting, it, it, it actually turns out that God himself is just as much a threat to his own people, which is not something... We like to entertain in our mind the idea that God could be a threat. And so this really marks the end of this tabernacle experience, this temple experience, not literally, but this worshipful experience at Shiloh. That's where all this took place with Samuel. God himself brings destruction on his tabernacle by the Philistines at Shiloh. He does it himself. Now remember, this is a place of sacrifice. This is a place where the priests were supposed to minister. This is a place where God, uh, his presence was represented by the ark being there. This is a place where Samuel grew up with Eli and he ministered before the Lord there. But now God himself desecrates Shiloh through the Philistines. And you say, well, why did he do that? Well, because Israel had already desecrated it because of the, the two wild boys, you know, the sons of Eli. And so... Because Israel had already desecrated it through the actions of the sons of Eli, God just said, okay, I'm done. No more. And what's interesting, if you jump over, you don't have to, I'll just read it for you. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, Jeremiah 7, verse 12 says this, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. All right. So God himself wiped that place out. What's the lesson there? You can't take God lightly. We can't take the presence of God lightly. We can't take the holiness of God lightly. We should never do that. Uh, the, the people of Beth Shemesh had it right when they said, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who, who's able to stand? And so the ark of God's presence can't be borne by the Philistines. The ark of God's presence can't even be borne by his own people, Israel. They're dealing with some havoc that it caused. So where can it stay safely? And that's the question that's posed for us. Um, This is the, the question that this whole section brings up for us. Who can stand before a holy God? Who is able to stand? Obviously, Dagon couldn't. They had to prop him back up. But now it seems that even God's people can't stand before him either. The people of Beth Shemesh cope with the ark the same way the Philistines did. And that's what we, where we pick up tonight. They sent it to another town. <laughs> they said, let's get this thing out of here. It would be sad if it wasn't for the introduction, reintroduction of Samuel back into the text of Scripture. He was introduced in chapter 3 as a spokesman for God. You didn't hear anything about him. 4, 5, 6. They're chasing this box around, this ark. And it's causing all these havoc on all these people, and all of a sudden, they kind of their wits come about them, and they realize, hey, maybe there's a better answer. Maybe we need to ask the prophet of God, kind of see what he has to say here. And so he's reintroduced here in chapter seven, and the last time we 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 went over. The end of the last lesson, basically, we ended with verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath jerim that's where they, they took it, from Besh Shemesh up to Kiriath jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. I think he probably just drew the short straw. I don't think you had a line of volunteers saying, I'll care for the ark. Hey, bring it into my house. You know, everybody's probably going, no, I don't think so. You know, after seeing everything that happened around this, this ark, I don't think they were real eager to have it in their backyard. And it says, from the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jearim, a long time passed. Look at this, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They mourned after the Lord you say well what does this mean this lamenting this mourning what is this all about uh, well they had a good reason <laughs> to mourn right they they lost what 34,000 men in battle they lost the ark and then it came back and it caused all this havoc they had reason to be in mourning but what's interesting when you compare chapter 7 of first samuel with chapter 7 of second samuel in chapters uh, 7 of 2 Samuel we see the the covenant that God makes where, where God makes uh, David king and so here in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel you see where peace is restored to Israel and it happens through this godly leader Samuel he's ruling as not just the prophet but also as the judge for 20 years Israel had been under the domination kind of enslaved almost to the Philistines. That's, that's what they had been dealing with. And Israel had, has really been under some kind of rule over by the Philistines this whole time. And when you stop and, and you think about it, I mean, I'm sure that that was not a pleasant experience for them. I mean, who wants to be, you know, if you're God's chosen people, you don't want to be under the rule of anybody. But they were. But God brought this victory that we're going to hear about here in this chapter. And it was a, vic- a victory of his own doing. It hadn't, you know, they, they didn't really play a big part in this whole thing. Other than a couple things, and we'll show you that. It was a victory of his sovereign intervention. But for 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant remained at kiriath And it says that they lamented after the Lord. They were sorrowful. They had every reason to be. I mean, we know it's hard to admit when we're wrong. As human beings. It's hard to confess our sins. It's hard to do these kind of things, but 20 years? I mean, this is an incredible long time. You know, it doesn't come naturally for us just to bow the knee and confess and, oh, okay, uh, I'll give it up. Uh, you know, that's, that's why it's a supernatural thing that God does in the human heart when someone's saved. It's not something that we generate, but God really designed his people, and he designed us to have a relationship with him. And literally, they walked away from that for 20 years. And they were missing out. They were missing out on God's daily love. They were missing out on his guidance. They were missing out on his peace. They were missing out on his assurance. They were missing out on the main reason they existed, really, was to have that relationship with God. And we've seen that in people when they walk away from the Lord. Their life usually does not go well. You're missing out on a lot of things. Here, they had walked away from God, and now it was time for them to return. And Samuel, through his instruction and through his leadership and through his marks of a godly leader, really draws them back into this vital relationship that they once had with God. And so these steps that we want to go through, they're they're kind of simple. But, you know, when you've walked away from God... Nothing is more important, I'd hope you'd agree, than returning to God. <laughs> you know, and we've probably all known people that they walk away from God, and basically, a lot of times, most times, their life does not go well. But here we see the first thing that a godly leader does. A godly leader calls for repentance. And you, you see this in verses 2 through 4. A godly leader calls for repentance. He says, From the day that the ark was logic carrieth during a long time had passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord or mourned after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of the Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. First thing here is that a godly leader calls for repentance. A godly leader calls for repentance, uh, mourning for sin and seeking after the Lord. That's what repentance is. It's a change of direction. There has to be a mourning for sin, which they did in verse 2, but then there also has to be a yearning after the Lord. You can't do one without the other. Now, Israel has been away from God for a long time. This is a long time. And one of the consequences of their rebellion was that they were under the subject of the Philistines for all those years. Now, I'm sure that that, like I said, was not a pleasant experience. They were probably miserable most of that time. But here, there's something different about their, their mourning. There's something different about their repentance. Uh, it says they literally lamented or mourned after the Lord. In other words, they weren't just sorry that they were under (laughs) the rulership and the the, the slavery of the Philistines. I mean, that was one thing to be sorry for. But they were sorry because they were apart from their God. See, that's key. And so God brought conviction upon their hearts. And that's why I think Samuel says to all the house of Israel, finally he's waiting, right? See, a lot of times we want to put the cart before the horse when it comes to people's salvation, when it comes to counseling with people. You know, we want to try to inject sorrow into people. We want to try to make people feel guilty. We can't. See, I mean, I've I've shared the Lord with people, and I know they're not a believer. You can just tell. And they're like, it's good for you. I don't don't care. And they really don't care. And you can talk to them until you're blue in the face and maybe you know if you're a really good talker you could kind of manipulate their feelings and get them to a point of making some profi- but is it genuine see when god does something when he puts something in your heart when he changes your attitude about your sin it's sincere you don't have to talk that person into coming to christ and that's where they got it says a long time passed and all the house of israel lamented after the lord in other words they realized, wow, we're in a bad place. This is not working out the way we thought. We need to change. Okay, we need to change. Samuel, seeing that, tells them in verse 3, if you are returning to the Lord, with what? With all your heart, because that's the only way you can return. (laughs) All right, if that's true, then here's what you need to do. And so, for the first time, they weren't just sorry that they were... Under, you know They weren't just complaining about the Philistines being rulers over them. and all, But they finally realized that, wow, you know what? We really miss that relationship with God. We're apart from the God that created us. And see, that's, that's indicative of any kind of true repentance. It always involves this. It involves two things. First of all, a sorrow for sin. But then it also involves a seeking after the Lord. You can't have one without the other. You can't still be in your sin saying, oh, I'm seeking God now and still actively in sin. And you can't be sorrowful for your sin but not seeking after God. Because that kind of sorrow is what? It's a worldly sorrow. It's kind of like, oh, I got caught. (laughs) Or I don't like the circumstances of this. See, it's not just sorrow for your consequences of your sin or the difficulty that the sin has caused in your life. But it's really a lamenting after God. Think of it this way. There's a, there's a horizontal sorrow, and there's a vertical sorrow. You know, we have to understand when we sin, it affects us, it affects those around us. And we may be sorrowful for that. But what about our relationship with God? He's the one that sees it. He's the one that's grieved by our sin. And so, we should be sorry for, your, for our sin because of the way it it affects that intimacy with the Lord. And so, true repentance begins with mourning for sin and a seeking after the Lord. Secondly, it it involves putting aside any rivals to God in your life. You can call them idols, you can call them whatever you want. Verse 3 says, And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, if you're sincere about this, with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. All right, serve him only. And that's conditional. You know, coming to Christ is not this blanket, oh, free grace, do whatever you want, just come, and, you know, Jesus loves you, and he died on the cross, and he'll forgive your sins, just say that he's the Lord, and that's it. No. It's somewhat (laughs) conditional. The blessing of God in your life is somewhat conditional. You're not going to sense the blessing of God even as a believer if you just continue in known sin day after day after day after day. God won't allow that to happen. The New Testament tells us that God will what? He'll discipline us. He won't punish us, but he will discipline us because he, he knows that that's not good for us just like a father would discipline a child. And so he says, you need to put all these rivals, anything that's a rival to God, away. True repentance means putting aside those kind of things. And so you kind of see the conditions of blessing here. First of all, they were commanded to put away strange strange gods. Um, You know, you can't come to God unless you first forsake our evil thoughts, our evil ways. You know, you don't, come to, you don't come to Jesus saying, yeah, I'm all good, I'm a good guy, and I just want to follow you. No, what does the Bible say? You have, to, you have to come to kind of the end of yourself. You have to realize that there's no hope for you outside of Christ. You know, you don't come prancing before Jesus saying, you know, all these other people are bad, they need their sins forgiven, but I don't have any sin, <laughs> right? Uh, that doesn't work out too well. And so there, there has to be a brokenness. There has to be an understanding that, you know what? You have to put away this stuff. And then, secondly, they were commanded to turn to the Lord with all their heart. In other words, a half-hearted conversion is no conversion. There's no such thing. God searches the heart. Remember that. That's what Scripture tells us. He doesn't care about what, what we have on the outside. All right? He wants a, a genuineness in our lives. He wants a genuineness, a deep-seated, deep-rooted cleansing and affection for what's right and for what's holy. He wants our heart. He doesn't care what it looks like. Um, Our Christianity isn't something that we just slip on on Sunday morning and wear it to church and then take it off the rest of the week. That's, unfortunately, a lot of believers live that way. But even Christ said, if you forgive not from your heart your enemies, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you. See, Christianity is not something that is, is just this outward appearance of holiness or whatever. No, God is more concerned with what's going on inside. That's why he constantly told the Pharisees, you know, have you not heard this? You know, you've heard this, but let me tell you what the real deal is. Because they were making up a religion in their own mind that would do just what God doesn't want, kind of play act, act holy. But really their hearts were unconverted. And then the third thing... Is that they were commanded to serve Him only. So put away the idols, turn to the Lord with all your heart, and serve Him only. Remember uh, the verse, a choose this day whom you will serve. All right? And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's, that's something that has to make that kind of a, you know, there, there has to be that kind of a decision. It's not a decision-based salvation but it's something that God brings you to the point in your life where you realize, wow, there's nowhere else to go. I can't help but trust in God. And so today we see this. It's very important in our churches that we understand that because there's a lot of people who are unwilling to bow their knees to Christ as Lord, but they'll, quote, name him as their Savior. And they'll run off and serve the God of Mammon, They'll bow down before worldly pleasures. They'll do all kinds of things. And I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus said, No man can serve two masters for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All right, so a practical step here is, what are the, what are the rivals to God in our, our lives? It could be anything. It doesn't have to be you know an idol that we prop up on our, on our fireplace. Uh, just remember, you never walk away from God to nothing. You're always walking to something if you're walking away from God. There's always something that we have allowed to come in between us and God. Uh, if you're not as close to God as you have been in the past, that's the question to ask. What, what's in between us? What, where have I let down my guard? It could be another person. It could be a goal you have, it could be money, it could be anger, it could be pride, it could be the use of your time. But you ask the question, what in what is it in your life that's keeping you from pursuing that relationship with God? That's a good thing. And we really need to think about that daily, don't we? We all do. Because we're bombarded with things that could interfere with our relationship with the Lord. Now, we're talking about this in a practical sense. Okay, as believers, we trust in Christ. He saves us. That's done. We're secure in Christ. We're not talking about losing your salvation, but we're talking about losing that intimacy. You know, when, when you have a child who's not obeying and you have to discipline that child. Okay, it's kind of a rough patch in the home for a couple weeks until you get through it. Well, why is that? Because the relationship's a little messed up. Does that mean they're not your son or your daughter? No, they're the same your son or your daughter. You still have that, that physical relationship that's literally your son or your daughter. But, you know, the, the whole intimacy, the emotions of the matter, everything. You're processing all that. Well, the same thing happens with our relationship with God. That, that, that aspect of it, that intimacy, can be limited. And so, thirdly here, we need to commit yourself to serving God and God alone. That was the third thing. True repentance, okay? And then committing yourself to serving God alone. This is what he says there in verse 3. He says, Rid yourself of all the foreign gods you asked your and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve Him only. Repentance isn't just turning from your sin. That's half of it. What's the second half? Turning to God. Turning to the Savior. If you just turn from your sin to another sin, or exchange that idol for another idol—that's not really helping you. Someone said that's like having a, 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 a husband who would have an affair. All right, and uh, say, well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to my wife, and but I'm gonna bring <laughs> this person I'm having an affair back, okay, into into the relationship. That's not gonna work. All right, the wife's not going to like that, and God definitely would not like that. It's kind of like quitting cigarettes and uh, taking up drugs. You know, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from your sin, but you're turning to something that's holy. You're turning to God. True repentance is always Godward in its direction. It's returning to the Lord. And so, first step is a godly leader calls for repentance, And that's what they did. Look at verse 4. So the Israelites put away their bales, their asterisks, and what they do? They serve the Lord only. So they're, they're, they're making progress. This is good. This is a positive thing. But this is under the instruction of their spiritual leader, Samuel. Well, the second thing a godly leader would do is call for prayer. Call for prayer. In other words, you need to talk to God about it. That's what prayer is, right? It's talking to God. It's communicating with God. Prayer can be related to an attitude. Paul says to pray... At all times, all right. that's kind of hard to physically do. You're not going to be constantly, literally on your knees, praying all the time. But you can have an attitude of prayer. What do I mean? An attitude of prayer is simply an attitude of dependence upon God. That you can't go a second without depending upon God. That's, that's the attitude of prayer. The first step is repentance. The second one is talking to God about it. And so the whole time, and it kind of goes together with the first step, if you think about it, because if you're going through that process, if you've ever been in sin and you've gone through the process of repentance, during that process as a believer, what are you doing? You're praying, right? You're asking God to give you the strength and set that aside, whatever. And you're dealing with that. But I also want to look at it as something, kind of a second step, even though it kind of folds together with the first one. Because in verses 5 through 11, you see, Three aspects of prayer here that are important if you're really returning to God. And the first one, in verse 5, he says, Then Samuel said, he's leading this, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. What's that? Asking for prayer from other believers. Practically. I mean, as we relate this to ourselves. That's the first thing. You know, so many times I've talked to people and they've said, Oh, you know, I've had this horrible thing, you know. And they tell you this horrible story. And it's like, why didn't you ask for prayer? Well, I don't want to bother anybody. Well, I just didn't. And, you know, that's that's not right. As the body of Christ, we need the help from other believers. We can't make this on our own. And Samuel realized that. He realized that Israel was weak. Why? Because they've been away from God for 20 years. And they needed help. And so what did he do? He said, hey, you know what? I'll pray for you. I'll go before the Lord on your behalf. And, you know, if you've ever walked away from God for any period of time, you realize how spiritually weak you can get really quick. And you're going to need some help to get back, to restore that relationship, that intimacy. And to do that, you need to ask other believers to pray with you and for you. Now, is that easy? Not easy for me. I mean, I don't like to ask people for prayer. I just don't. It's pride is what it is. I don't want to bother them. I don't, you know, I don't want them to think whatever. But you know what? So what does it take? It takes some humility on our part to go to another brother or sister in Christ and say, you know what? I really need some prayer on this or over this, whatever the issue might be. Uh, that's why God gave us one another. That's what we're learning, right, on Sundays through Romans 15. I mean, the body is one. We're, we're called together to minister to one another. That's why God has given us to each other. Uh, As believers, we're never meant, God never meant for us to live our Christian life in isolation. It just doesn't work out too well. And we all probably know people who sit at home on Sunday mornings and watch some person on a TV screen. That's my church. You know, I don't have to put up with the hypocrites, I don't have to put up a little gossip, I don't have to do, you know. But that's not what God's called us to do. He said, "Do not forsake what? The assembling of yourselves together. as hard as that is sometimes. We need to do it. Why? Because the Christian life has never meant, was never meant to be lived in isolation. God calls us into community with each other. We're meant to lift each other up. We are meant to be transparent, and that kind of leads into the, the next thing, freely confessing your sin against. The Lord. Verse 6. When they got to Mitzvah, they assembled there. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day, uh, they fasted. And there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was the leader of Israel at Mitzvah. Now, you have a, here you have a, a picture of a, a complete corporate confession of sin. All Israel coming together, confessing something. You don't see that today at all. Hardly ever. You know, maybe you have a little prayer room or maybe you have people come down and they, you know, kind of cloister over in the corner and share their... But you, very seldom do you have a church coming together and confessing their sins together before the Lord. We don't know what the pouring out of the water before the Lord represented it. I don't know what that means. I've done some research on it, but it, nobody really has to have a clear answer. Um, you don't find it in any of the other sacrifices to God, but it probably goes along with what they were doing. They were fasting and fasting from food and pouring out water before the Lord. But either way, they came together for prayer and they freely confessed their sin before the Lord. And once again, if you think confessing your sin, asking prayer uh, from another believer is pride-crushing, think what it's like to confess your sin to another believer. Think what it's like to confess your sin in front of a host of other believers. Now, I don't think we're called to do that on a regular basis. I think it's pretty much the exception here. And we don't like admitting getting help from anybody. We don't like admitting when we're wrong. So it's a humbling thing to do. Your confession of sin may be private, but I think when our sin has affected other people, we need to at least go to those people and confess that sin. But... First and foremost, your confession needs to be before God. And that's what they did here. And then the third thing, you see in uh, verses 7 to 9, that they were, they were instructed to trust God to deliver them by his grace. Look at what it says there in verse 7 to 9. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. In other words, they thought, okay, what are they doing? This isn't how this is supposed to work. We're ruling over them. What are they doing? They can't just meet on their own this way. What's going on? And it says they went up against them. In other words, they got everything ready to go to battle. Obviously, we're going to go have to give them another lick, and they didn't learn their lesson the first time. They didn't learn the lesson even the second time. So this time, we're going to go back, and you know, they've been away from that ark long enough. They're probably weak enough we can take them. No problem. And when the people of Israel heard of it, look, they were afraid of the Philistines. They were afraid of the Philistines. Why? They had good reason, right? I mean, they got their butt kicked twice. They got the ark stolen from them. They, they were, they were kind of timid about this whole idea of going to battle. And it says that the people of Israel said to Samuel, look at what they said. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God. For us. They finally had their trust in the right place. What happened before when they went to battle the second time? Where was their trust? In the ark, right? I mean, get the ark! That's going to be the, the, the key to our victory. But this time, they were trusting in the God who was represented by the ark. All right, so that was a good play on them. It says that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel, being the spiritual leader that he was, took a nursing lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Now remember, the Philistines are probably, you know, they see the dust of the Philistines coming. <laughs> they're coming, full bore. They're going to they're go at him in battle. And here's Israel with Samuel and they're, they're sacrificing a lamb. Doesn't seem like a very bright way, if you're a commander of an army, to prepare for battle. But that's what they were doing. And it says that uh, uh, he, he sacrificed this nursing lamb and offered as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord, what? Answered him. You know, if you walk away from God, I guarantee you one thing. I can guarantee you this. If you walk away from God, you're going to have issues. You're going to have issues in your life. You're just, you just are. Why? As I said, that's because God disciplines us when we walk away from him. Why? So that we will return to him all right he does it lovingly sometimes he does it firmly sometimes it doesn't feel good sometimes there are grave consequences but you know what god is god and he's going to get his way so it's it's better just to cooperate in the beginning and so israelites israel here they had a uh, a problem because they were they had walked away from god now they returned but the consequences of their sin they still had a problem and their problem had a name and it was called the Philistines. And so when they heard this, they cried out, and he sacrificed a lamb. Now, remember, whenever you see any kind of sacrifice, any kind of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, it's, a, it's kind of a red flag in your face. Immediately, you should think of who? Exactly. You think of Christ. You think of his sacrifice. Okay? None of the sacrifices in the Old Testament did anything as far as forgiveness of sin. It didn't pay for one sin. Hebrews tells us that, right? Even though they did it faithfully every day. Why? Because that's what God told them to do. Why? Because they were looking forward to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. All the Old Testament sacrifice did was point forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, on the cross. And so they're a reminder of them and to us of what? Of God's grace. Of God's forgiveness. And so whatever problems you're facing that you brought into your own life because you'd walked away from God. When you come to God in prayer and you trust him to deliver you by his grace, he will do just that. That's, that's the incredible thing. He's not going to whack you over the head with a club. He's not going to say, nope, I'm done. No more. See, we don't understand that. So what do we do? Sometimes we come to God asking him to deliver us from the circumstances that we find ourselves in due to our own sin based on something we've done well, God, look at what I just did. You know, it'd be nice if you took care of this problem. We start this bartering process with God. Or sometimes we find ourselves in a situation, where we say, God, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll do that. So we're, we're basically bartering with God on something we will do. Whenever we come before God in prayer, we always have to remind him and come to him based on the fact of what Jesus has what? Already done. What he's already done for us. It doesn't matter what we did or what we're going to do it matters what christ has already done and that's really what it means to trust god to deliver you by his grace well what happened it says that god answered but what happened look at verse 10 as samuel was offering up the burnt offering the philistines drew near to attack israel so like i said it's just a very unorthodox way to defeat your enemy You know, at one point, they're probably looking over their shoulders. They're seeing the Philistines come. They're hearing the the roar of the chariots and the horses. And they're thinking, this is is not good. Come on, Samuel. Can we hurry this up a little bit, maybe? The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But it says, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated that day before Israel. All the men of Israel went out to Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth-kar. And so God gives Israel this incredible victory. And like I said, he's the one that crafted this whole thing. But they were just obedient to do what God's spokesman, God's leader, okay, we're going to do this, sacrifice this lamb, and just be patient, guys. We're gonna, God's going to answer this prayer but he's going to do it in his time and in his way. And all of a sudden, this thundering whatever, and it just blows their mind, the Philistines. They, apparently, confusion, they started even attacking each other. And so it's kind of a weird, a weird thing, but it's a supernatural thing because God's watching out for his people. And he knows that they're trusting in him to deliver them by his grace, and God will always do that. So he miraculously delivered the Israelites from the Philistines that day. And then the last thing here that a godly leader does is he calls for remembrances. He calls for remembrances. Or he calls for uh, the word in scripture here is Ebenezer's. <laughs> Ebenezers. So what are the steps of kind of reestablishing this relationship for Israel with their God? First, it's what? Repentance. Second is prayer. The third is remembering the faithfulness of God. This doesn't happen all of a sudden. Remember, they were away from God for how many years? 20 years. Okay? And so this isn't just going to, okay, we repented, we prayed, and then everything's back to glory. Oh, everything's just happy, happy, happy. No. It doesn't work that way. You have to be patient. We'll never have it all together till we get to heaven. And everything between now and heaven is what? Is a process. A process we call sanctification. It's a process of making us more like Christ. Molding us, shaping us, pushing us, shoving us. It's not comfortable. Sometimes it's painful. But we're not going to have it all together just because we repented and we prayed and then, oh wow, all the consequences of our sins are gone. Everything's done. It doesn't work that way. It, it basically means this. Returning to the Lord means that you're returning to the process of becoming more like Christ. It's just a process. It doesn't mean that you've arrived. It means that you're resuming your spiritual journey with Christ. You're not arriving at the destination yet. We won't get there till heaven. And this sometimes is the hardest. You know, God brings us to a point of repentance. The Bible even says that he grants us repentance. He gives us the gift of prayer. But the idea of remembering the faithfulness of God through that difficult, daily, sometimes painful journey of growing more and more like Christ can be hard. And so what are are some ways that we can uh, make this a little easier? I didn't put them in your outline here, but the first one is marking your progress. Marking your progress. Look at verse 12. It says, Then Samuel... Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mitzpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. God gave them this great uh, victory here. And Samuel did not want Israel... To forget it. <laughs> so what did he do? He, he made this marker. He made a stone. Ebenezer simply means a stone of help. We, we, we sing the, the song, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the one verse says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. And some people go, what is that? Well, that's what it is. It's a stone of help. It's a stone of remembrance. It's a stone that says, you know what? God's not done yet. He's going to be faithful. Uh, he, he wants us to understand that it's kind of a, a way of marking this progress in our Christian growth. You know, whenever you take on any kind of a big project, anything that's any kind of sizable thing, whether it's business, whether it's just personally, whatever it might be, it's always good to mark out your progress. I remember when we, uh, a couple years ago, we went to Hawaii and we went on the hike with Crystal and, and the kids and, and, and Will and some of the people from the church. And we went up this mountain, like on this trail. Every now and then, probably a little more often than I would like to admit, I would have to stop and kind of look over the edge and go, wow, look at a beautiful view. Look at, remember we were way down, there. look at our car way down there. And then we'd go climb some more and then we'd look down. And it was kind of a, it was rewarding to think, wow, we came from all the way down there. And then, but we still got to go way up there. But it motivated you because you wanted to see what? The vision from the top. You wanted to be able to go up there all the way to the top and look down on your car and go, yeah, we, we did it. We made it all the way. And, and sometimes that's how it is in life, whether you're working on a, a degree, whether you're working on a, a relationship, whether you're doing whatever, a business, you have to have certain milestones in place. You know, that's why it's important, I think, as believers to you know, stop and to, to write down some of those milestones in a journal or, or to do something like that, just something, a card, something that can cause you to look back and say, wow, I remember this time was a hard time, and, but you know what, God was faithful. And now it seems like nothing, but man, I remember my emotions at that time. And, and sometimes we can't remember them if we don't write them down, so it's good to, good to do that. And so you, you, you have to find ways to mark that progress in your Christian life. So you can see how far you've come. Because after a while, it just becomes you know, relevant to your situation. You, you forget what it was like when you were first saved or, or 10 years ago in your, in your Christian life. I'm reminded of the words of John Newton, who wrote the words to Amazing Grace. But he once said this, I'm not the man I ought to be, and I'm not the man I wish to be, and I'm not the man I hope to be. But by God's grace, I'm not the man I used to be. And see, that should be something that we can say each and every day. That every day, God's doing something fresh in our life. That we're growing more and more into the image of Christ. And then the second thing, I think that not just mark your progress, but also see, observe the changes. Observe the changes. Look at verses 13 to 14. He says here, So the Philistines were subdued and did not... Again, enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So not only do you mark your progress, but you see what God is doing in your life. Uh, you know, that's, that's the whole idea of growing more like Christ, it doesn't mean that when you return to God, all your problems suddenly disappear. Israel still had issues, um, and Christians, we as Christians, we can go through hard times just like everybody else. But it does mean that God will withdraw His disciplining hand from you when you return to Him. And as a believer, as someone who knows Christ and knows God, you know we we probably have all been under the disciplining hand of our heavenly Father at times. And doesn't it feel good when we, we confess that sin, we put it behind us, and, and we stop it, and we, we, we get out from under that disciplining hand of our Heavenly Father? It means that God will be there to help us through our difficulties. You may still have to suffer the consequences of the sin that once was in your life, but you can observe those, those changes and, and that's a that's a good good thing. It's kind of, you know, sometimes you can think of it as a ripple effect of obedience. You know, when you you have a you out to a lake or a pond and you, it's you know nice calm morning, there's not a ripple. You just take one little pebble and you just go bink. What happens? Those ripples just. Pink! You know, it's the same way with our obedience. You know, when you get one part of your life back in order with God, the other parts start to kind of fall in place. But it's that, it's that first part, it's coming back to God and admitting your pride and, and repenting and coming to him in prayer and, and really being willing to follow him with your full heart. But once that's there, you still got issues. But you know what? It's kind of like they, they, the, the ripples of obedience fall a little easier. And see, when they return to God, not only were they delivered from the power of the Philistines, it tells us, But there was also peace with the Amorites. The Amorites were basically, for lack of a better term, some Philistines that were still within the region of Israel. They lived within the the boundaries of Israel. And so the Philistines lived outside the borders of Israel. The Amorites were those groups of people still within the borders of Israel. uh, But God even delivered them both from the outside forces, the Philistines, and gave them peace within their borders with their neighbors there. And it was a it's kind of a ripple effect of of positive change, and so you'll you'll see that in your life when you when you uh, seek to restore that relationship with with God. And then the last thing is not just mark your progress, and the, the last thing is living it out in your daily routine. Look at verse fifteen, verse fifteen, because you know <laughs> you can kind of sense this this whole thing. Uh, building up to this 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 apex and you know, you've the progress. You see that God doing this wonderful work But look at what it says in verse 15. It says Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life and He went on a circuit <laughs> Year by year kind of a triangle if you map it out on your on your Bible maps Bethel to Gilgal the Mitzvah just kept on doing it. Bethel to Gilgal the Mitzvah and then he'd go in the middle to his home um, in Ramah. It says he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah from his home, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar uh, to the Lord. So even though Samuel was used by God in an incredible way to bring Israel back, right, from their fallenness of 20 years, I mean, can you imagine what a spiritual high that man must have been on? Wait, you guys are really mourning for, for real this time? Wow, I, if you're really sincere about this, then put away the idols. That's a, Okay, and they do it. And they confess their sin before the Lord, and that's like the second. And then they're thinking, wow, this is incredible. He is just on a spiritual high. I mean, it's, it was a very dramatic time for this man of God. The people responded to his leadership. They were repenting of their idolatry. They were putting their their trust back in the Lord. God was seen being, he was delivering them from these Philistines, and it was done in a supernatural way. So Samuel knew without question that God was at work here. This wasn't just a, you know, coincidence. They set up the stone as a marker of their progress. It was really what I would call mountaintop experience, We've all had those, right? As a matter of fact, I thought of this song. let see if I can bring it up here. It was a mountaintop experience. It was the name of the song, Mountaintop. It was written by Elliot Bannister. But just listen to the words. It says, I love to sing and I love to pray. Worship the Lord most every day. I go to the temple and I just want to stay to hide from the hustle of the world and its ways. And I'd love to live on a mountaintop Fellowshipping with the Lord. I'd love to stand on a mountaintop because I love to feel my spirit soar. But I've got to come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below, or they'll never know that they can go to the mountaintop of the Lord. Now, praising the Father is a good thing to do, to worship the Trinity in spirit and truth. But if we worshiped all the time, There would be no one to lead the blind. But I've got to come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below or they'll never know that they can go to the mountaintop of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that worship is wrong, but worship is more than just singing a song. And all that you say and everything that you do is letting his spirit live through you. You know, the one point that I want to make is that Samuel was on the mountaintop. And even the people were right there with him. I mean, they were probably going, whoa, God is awesome, you know? I mean, this is incredible. What's next? What's God going to do next? And God taps Samuel on the the shoulder and says, get back to it, <laughs> right? You, you got a job to do, Samuel. You're going to judge these people till the end of your life. You're not going to stay up here. This isn't, you know, going to be going on all the time like this there's going to be other problems you're going to have to deal with them so the Bible tells us that you know what what God had for Samuel next was the daily routine, routine of judging Israel and year after year Samuel was faithful he went from Bethel to Gilgal to Mitzbah, took a break and went home went to Bethel Gilgal Mitzbah, took a break and went home see mountaintop experiences are great but the last time I checked, not a lot of people live on a mountaintop, on the very peak of a mountain. Usually people live down in the valleys. See, it's one thing to serve God in the dramatic moments of life. You know, you go to a conference or you, you do something, you know, whatever. And you wow, well, this is wonderful, wonderful. It's another thing to, you know, you, you, you get rattled away from that and you realize, oh, no, I've got to go back to serving God every day. Being faithful to Him every day, getting up in the morning, reading my Bible every day, praying, witnessing, going to work, being a good testimony, loving the people that He's placed around me, loving my neighbors, loving the church, trying to do everything for God's glory. Then I go home, I go to bed, sleep, and I get up the next morning. I read my Bible, I pray. That's what we're called to do. It's worth it. That's what it doesn't sound. Uh, it, it doesn't sound very. Um, I guess it sounds monotonous, doesn't it? It's like, oh man. But you know what? It's glorious. It's glorious. It's not really glamorous, but it's glorious. And that's what God calls us to do. And it's it's the only thing that really makes our lives worthwhile. So, just in conclusion here quickly and then we'll take any questions. Israel waited 20 years from the time they got the ark before they returned to the Lord. I don't think we have to wait that long. <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea to wait that long. I've never talked to somebody who's taken a a wrong turn away from the Lord. And I've never heard somebody say, you know what? I'm going to wait till next year, and then I'm going to come back to the Lord. I've never heard them say that, ever. They always say this, you know, not today. Not today. Now is not the right time. But you know what happens? After a while, those not todays begin to add up. And they add up into weeks and months and even years. And you never want to drift from God. You never want that to happen. And, you know, even if it's been one day, it's been too long. You know, it's time to return to the Lord. And, and God was faithful. He gave them a period of rest. The Philistines were subdued, it tells us. They had no more infiltrators into their, their camp, into their land. And not only that, but they received back everything that they lost because of their own sin. I mean, it just, it really shows us the faithfulness of God in every way to his people. And, um, you know, I hope that, you know, when when we look at our own lives, that those occasions when we do maybe turn the wrong way from the Lord, that it won't be a long period of time, but that we'll remember those those things that Samuel called, called for repentance, called for uh, prayer and called for uh, remembrances. And hopefully that helps us.